Uh, we've been making our way through the book of Colossians. So if you have your copy of God's Word, would you go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3 this morning? We're considering verses 5 through 11. But let's begin reading and hearing God's Word in Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in faith asking, seeking, and knocking on the merit of our Lord Jesus. You have promised that you will always hear us when we cry out to you. You have promised that you will always answer us. And you've promised that you will always and only give us your best. So we come as those this morning who are spiritually hungry and thirsty. We come admitting our weariness and our doubts. We come ignorant of so much, but so confident of your goodness and graciousness. So we ask that you would open your word to us this morning. Father, would you send your spirit to illuminate the goodness of your ways and the wisdom of your good counsel to us? Father, hear us, help us to hear uh, the great hope that there is for sinners, the great confidence in being united to your son. Father, help me. Help me to speak boldly, clearly, unflinchingly, graciously, with all the conviction of a minister of your gospel ought to have. In the name of our Lord Jesus, who is most certainly our faithful high priest, we pray. Amen. Why does God save sinners? Have you ever thought of that? Perhaps you've thought how he saves or what we must do to be saved. But have you considered why he saves? There's more than one right answer to that question. The Bible points us in a few different directions. Certainly we know that God saves because he loves us. John 3 tells us that. We also know that God saves sinners for the praise of his own name. That he gets glory in doing so. But there's certainly another answer that's equally as important, and it's just as biblical, and it's that God saves sinners to make them holy. 
That means one of the very important aspects in thinking through and talking about Christian living must include the subject of transformation. Who we were before Christ. What we loved before Christ. What we feared before Christ. will look different because of Christ. And... This subject of how Christians are different from who they once were is really central to understanding the thrust of Colossians chapter 3. As we came to verse 5 that was just read this morning, there's a very critical therefore statement. And we know what it's there for. It reminds us that everything Paul is going to say is founded upon what he has just said. Now that's particularly important. It's particularly important because if you notice how many imperatives or how many commands fill the remainder of this chapter, you must put away anger, malice, wrath. Put on compassion, kindness, and humility. He will say, you must forgive. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, Paul is not just doling out rules for no reason as he begins to close his letter. He's expecting something of the Colossians. And what he's expecting of them is owed to their newfound status of being in Christ. Because, as he says in the top of chapter 3, you died with Christ because you've risen with Christ and because you shall appear with him in glory, therefore. That is the all-important understanding of everything that comes within chapter 3. And so what we could say, distilling all of that down in two phrases, is this. To say that we are a Christian and remain unchanged is unthinkable. And yet, to be united to Christ means that our transformation is indisputable. Consider how this works itself out in verses 5 through 11 as we consider that the Christian is to have new affections. And the Christian is to have new ambitions. New affections and new ambitions. Look back at verse 5 and consider the affections that Paul speaks to. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul's very clear here, isn't he? A Christian has new affections. We live to please God not self. And when I speak of affections, as I'm using that word, I'm using it in the sense that Christians have used it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Don't think of affections as a synonym for emotions. Rather, the way Christians have used this word has to do include emotions, but much more than just emotions. Jonathan Edwards is, is one man who's written and thought much on this subject of affections And he emphasizes that it involves the mind, the will, the feelings, and always resulting in action. 
That's affections. Affections are the fruit of or the effect of what the mind understands and knows. And the emphasis of chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, is ultimately upon the contrast of affections between a Christian and a non-Christian. As you read this group of five statements here in verse 6, you could, 5 and 6, you could thematically grip, uh, group these five vices according to the seventh, the tenth, and the first commandment. Notice what Paul's doing here. Seventh commandment. <coughs> you shall not commit adultery. Tenth commandment. You shall not covet. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, certainly the only reason we break commandments 2 through 10 is because we've already broken the first commandment. All sin is idolatry because all sin is an expression of love and worship. And you could boil this list of five vices down even further, essentially summing them up under the heading of the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And maybe you don't see that connection explicitly, but contextually, everything that Paul lists here, even covetousness and idolatry, contextually it's flavored and shaded by this group of sins that are thematically understood to be related to sexual immorality. How does the seventh commandment include all of these vices? Well, our catechism, the Baptist Catechism, question 76 And 77 asks, what's required and what's forbidden when it comes to the seventh commandment? That's a good way to think about the law. It's not just the forbidding, but what is positively, what's it pointing to? What's required in the seventh commandment? Answer, the seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity of heart, speech, and behavior. What's forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Saying that, just to be clear, that when you hear, you shall not commit adultery, don't be like the Pharisees who checked the box and said, good to go, what's eight? There's so much more that's included in the spirit of what God is forbidding and promoting. Now let's be clear, sex is not the problem. The corruption and the distortion of the goodness of sexual intimacy most certainly is. It was Frederick Buechner who said, contrary to what some believe, sex is not a sin. And contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. Like nitroglycerin, it can be used either to blow up bridges or to heal hearts. A wise observation. A Christian has new affections, and this will be seen in part by the way that he or she relates to God's design for sexuality. So what's the concern for our affections here? Well, the concern is there in verse 6. These are the very things upon which the wrath of God is coming. To live in unrepentant sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, it not only damages 
friendships. It not only damages families. It not only destroys the thought patterns that you have when you lie awake at night or drive in your car. They will ultimately bring about the condemnation of God's judgment upon unrepentant sinners. And while the Christian is most certainly preserved from the wrath of God's justice against sin, the reality of God's wrath upon these things serves to show the Christian just how displeasing they are to God. This reminder for us here in what Paul says, the wrath of God will come upon these things. Christian, that is essentially the smelling salt to awaken you, to awaken your senses, to sober you, lest you think you could downplay these somehow. Lest you're tempted in some way to just think flippantly about these words, that these are the sins that will provoke the very wrath of God. Meaning I say to myself, men and women will endure the tortures of in eternal hell for this sin, in an unrepented insistence upon this sin, how could I entertain this or enjoy this? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does Paul say that? Because we're so easily deceived. Neither... The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so from this, we can say two things. We can say that the wrath of God is coming and that judgment is certain because it's the wrath of God. God does not lie. God does not change. If he has commanded a particular behavior and promised judgment upon those who continue in that, we can be certain this God will follow through. Judgment is certain. But we can also conclude that this judgment is coming, and friend, that it is just. It's not an unrighteous or unfair judgment. God's the creator. Man is creation. God is the authority. He's the designer. He's owed our obedience. And so any rebellion against his design, against his creation, is the highest form of treason because of who God is. So friend, if the wrath of God or the coming judgment of God sounds strange to you or even offensive to you this morning as you hear about it, I would urge you to consider your categories of love and justice. Is it possible that your idea of love is actually lower than the Bible's definition of love? Is it possible that you've disconnected the necessity of justice and the reality of love from one another? And think about what that might mean. Because the concern for the coming wrath of God, it's meant to frame up for the Christian the way that we relate to the sexual ethic of our world. There's something that has happened and there's a concern that we have. 
Paul also speaks not to this concern only, but to the necessary change in our affections. A Christian has new affections because of the change that God has wrought within them. This is verse 7. If in these you two once walked when you were living in them. Something happened to these Colossians. They're no longer living as they once did. The gospel preached in Ephesus somehow came to this city and began to bear fruit among them. There would be a time where you could visit the the city of Colossae and meet these same people and then some point in the future visit and meet them again and you would be struck by the fact these people are different. I just met him or her a few years ago and I saw them again and something is radically different. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Now, this is not to say that Christians nor these Colossians were without sin. Don't make that mistake. But it is to say, it is certain to say, that they are no longer content to live in their sin. They're no longer comfortable with the behavior that they chose to partake in. And this is why we say that a Christian is someone who is ever increasingly uncomfortable with unrepentant sin. A Christian is not somebody who's sinless, but a Christian who's somebody who has a growing, uncomfortable, grievous hatred for sin. They flee from it. They gladly confess it. They repent of it. Why is that? Well, primarily because of something that God has done to the Christian. Contextually, we could even just think back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, which says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Something's happened to us that we've been delivered and transferred. And then chapter 3, just if you look back up at verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is one of the reasons why we take the time to hear the testimonies of those who join the membership of our church. We want to celebrate these examples of repentance, not just mere morality. We want to celebrate the change that God brings about in sinners through Christ. We want to think it's normal as a church body to see and hear the various ways in which Christ changes the affections of his people. So that we put that before us to remind ourselves that this is what God does, and this is how we happen to do it in this person's life. This is how we happen to do it in that person's life. But this is what God does to Christians. There is a change that's wrought in them. Because a local church should be a community of new creatures. Through our sacrificial love and obedience to Christ's commands, we adorn the gospel that God has changed us with, and we testify to God's gracious working as we walk in the ways that he's given to us. And unfortunately, the opposite can also be true of a church. When a church looks more like the world than its Savior, it essentially preaches a different gospel. It's still preaching. It's still proclaiming something. But it's a distortion of the genuine gospel. 
Perhaps it's a message that says change has to do more with changing your political convictions. Or change has more to do with just putting a smile on your face and being nice to other people. Or that change has more to do with the particular social action that you are now involved in. Or the behavior modification that you are suppressing upon yourself. It's preaching something. And so all of this sets up the reasoning for the command that's given concerning our affections. There's a concern, there's a change, there's a command. And this is verse 6, verse 5. Because of the change that's wrought within the Christian and because of the reality of coming judgment, it is reasonable, it is logical to command here death to sin. That's what verse 5 says. And when Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, Keep it in context. This is in contrast to what is above. Remember verses 1 through 4? He's just been talking about what is above, and then he immediately says in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. He didn't just pull that word earthly out of nowhere. There's a line of reasoning that the Holy Spirit is pressing upon us here. In contrast to what is above, there are certain things that are earthly. And what is it? Well, if above is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, then, verse 5, put to death everything that is opposed to that rule. All that lives in rebellion to that rule of Christ. Every expression that refuses to bow the knee to Christ's lordship. Death to tyrants. That's the context. Put to death. What is earthly, it's a command to kill the tyranny of our remaining sinful corruption. Everything that opposes Christ's rule dies. Because the Christian is one who is united to Christ, rejoicing in Christ's rule over all creation. And Christ is the one who sits seated at the right hand of the Father in session, ruling over all of his creation. And it is a response to that that is giving no quarter to sinful rebellion in my life. Now, we understand a few things here. We understand that the indwelling of sin always remains with us as long as we remain in the world. Christian, there is no point in your life where you suddenly reach a certain stage of maturity which you will not be tempted. There is one point, and it will be just the moment after your last breath. But until that point, expect the tyranny of sin to keep attempting to usurp the throne of Christ. While sin remains within us, we know it's not a peaceable and contented passenger. Sin remains with us in this life, even though we are in Christ. But sin is not just content to follow along and tell glory. Sin remains with us, and sin is the worst form of a backseat driver you could ever imagine. Sin is still acting. It is still laboring. It is still scheming to deceive and to corrupt in order to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. That's what our sinful nature is doing until we breathe our last breath. 
And in the words of John Owen, when sin lets us alone, we may let it alone. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. And this putting to death is known as the mortification of sin. Perhaps you've heard that and wondered, what does that mean? The mortification of sin? It's in part this right here, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death. Kill it. Death to the tyranny of the rebellion of sin in my life against Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Mortification of sin specifically, you could sum it up in three ways. I'm summing it up in three ways because John Owen summed it up in three ways, and he's done a lot more thinking on this than I have and has helped me greatly. Mortification is the intentional and habitual weakening of sinful desire. The intentional and habitual weakening of sinful desire. Number two, mortification is the constant fight and contention against sin. Number three, Mortification is a spirit-enabled fight that will eventually end in victory for every Christian over sin. Meaning, non-Christian, this isn't your fight. Your first fight is repent and believe. And once you repent and believe and you're united to Christ, ding goes the bell. Now you're fighting. Our own confession, the Second London Confession, chapter 13, which is devoted to the topic of sanctification, three paragraphs, paragraphs two, This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. And from this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Paragraph 3. In this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet... Through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. The saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands of Christ as head and king as he has given them in his word. Christians put sin to death. Let's be a little more practical here. What does that actually look like? Maybe you recognize there is a certain tyranny going on in your own soul. Maybe you recognize that you profess Christ as king, but what comes out of your heart and what out of your mouth is treason. How do you put those deeds to death? A couple of practical things. First thing we need to do is recognize our sinful desires by knowing what they are. It's very unhelpful to just say, there's an enemy Okay, what does this enemy look like? How does he try and scheme and work? What's his angle? What's his desire? Recognize sinful desires by knowing what they are. How do you do that? Well, here's a couple of questions you can ask yourself to try and discern and think. What are the particular remaining residues of sin that are the sinful desires seeking to usurp the authority that belongs to Christ? What is it, other than Christ? that you are not sure that you could live without. If that was taken away, I don't know what I would do. What do you become defensive over when it's threatened? Even if it's threatened by the people that you dearly love. 
What are you hiding from the people that you love? What do you think other people owe you? What are you normalizing that the Bible calls sin? As you give meditation to those questions, those might be some of the very areas that you could say those are the sinful desires that need to die. Because those are the very desires that are in opposition to this great reality of Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. Secondly, if you're going to mortify sin, you need to remember, Christian, that you've died with Christ. Your judgment day, it's already come. You died with Christ. Your judgment was poured out upon Jesus, upon his cross for you. You're not putting sin to death to earn God's love. You're putting sin to death because God loves you. That is so important that you don't reverse those things. Your judgment day has already come and it was poured out upon Christ. You are reconciled to the Father. Go back and read through Colossians 1. Because you are reconciled, you delight to put sin to death. Number three, remember that all desires need an outlet. Cut off the outlet. A desire that cannot be expressed will slowly, eventually, wither and die. Where desire and opportunity meet, that's where temptation is the strongest. So Christian, be ruthless in cutting off the opportunities for desire to express itself in the deeds of the flesh. This is a really easy one. Where is a danger zone? Where does desire and opportunity meet? Where are the outlets that I'm giving for the expression of this sinful desire? When I'm with so-and-so, we end up gossiping for an hour. I just don't know what to do. Whenever I'm home alone and I have unfettered internet access, it doesn't go well for me. Cut off the outlet. Number four, replace a sinful desire with a new desire. Thomas Chalmers wrote about this, preached about the explosive power of a new affection. Because this man, Thomas, knew his own heart. And he knew that the only way to experience lasting change is to replace corrupt affections with new and greater affections. You cannot destroy love for the world by simply just clearing out the house and saying, there's no love for the world here anymore. You evict love for the world by this wonderful meditation upon God's love for you and your delight to love him. The expulsive power of a new affection. Because the changes wrought within the Christian and because of the reality of coming judgment, we put sin to death. Instead of self-pleasure and all the forms that we can gratify self, we seek to please God. Instead of self-glorification and gratification, we glorify God. A Christian has new affections. A Christian also has new ambitions. Look back at Colossians 3. Look what Paul says in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, that you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. A Christian has new ambitions. We prefer others rather than self. Why do I say that? If I choose to love myself rather than you, then I can more easily justify what comes out of my mouth. And notice that's the thematic grouping of each of these sins that we're told to put away. They have to do with our words. Obviously, it has to do with something of our hearts, but the expression of our hearts made visible through our words. If I convince myself that I'm more important than you, if my ambition to please self is more important than my ambition to please you, it's so much easier to slander you. It's so much easier to justify my anger against you. It is so much easier to justify disunity because of the importance of who I am compared to the unimportance of who you are. Christians have a new ambition. Just with the five vices that Paul summarized in verse 5, there's another five vices that are summarized here in chapter 8. You could condense and summarize all of these under the sixth and the ninth commandment. Paul pays attention to the law of God. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, what is forbidden and what is promoted here? Well, just think about what's forbidden just for the sake of time in the sixth commandment. From the Westminster larger catechism, what's forbidden in the sixth commandment, among other things, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. You shall not murder. It's applied in that way. A Christian has new ambitions, and this will be seen in the way that he or she relates to loving others rather than the infatuation of self. Again, there's the pattern here. There's a change in our ambitions. Really, the thrust of Paul's emphasis in verse 9 through 11, it rests upon the reality of the transformed nature of the Christian. Notice the language he uses. Old self versus new self. This could literally be understood as old man, new man. Who we were before Christ in Adam and who we are in Christ is our federal head. If you want a parallel kind of thought, Ephesians 4 verse 22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul writes to the Romans, Romans 6, 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Friends, it is so critical that we see the must of verse 8. Do you see it there in your Bibles? That we see the must. You must. 
and the binding obligation that the Christian has to do so, it's grounded upon who we are and what Christ has done. The very weight of the obligation that Paul brings upon here is in direct connection to who we are in Christ. Because this is true, you must put these off. Our old self, spiritually dead, without any desire to change. Our old man was in bondage to sin, absolutely powerless to change. But seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you are being renewed according to the image of our creator and seeing how this new creation is is essentially leveling all earthly distinctions like race, ethnicity, social class, that's verse 11, we ought to expect to have new ambitions as God's people. Meaning this is not just something that happens to nice, mild-mannered, well-put-together, well-funded Americans. This is something for everyone. You are at no advantage or disadvantage in putting sin to death or putting off these things if you have a bigger bank account or a smaller bank account, if you live in a greater house or a lesser house, If you're married or unmarried, Christ is all and in all. Just as Paul said earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery, Paul? Christ in you, Gentile. Christ is in you, Colossian. He is the hope of glory. What he's saying is that it's reasonable to expect a Christian to have new ambitions because Christ is all and Christ is in all. Think about those two statements. Christ is all. What has Paul said just in this letter about Christ being all? That Christ is the fullness of God in which the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And from his fullness, Christian, you have all received grace upon grace. That's John's language. Christian, you are united to Christ, and Christ is all. He's all-sufficient. He's all-sustaining. He is all-power. He is preeminent. It's reasonable to expect you to have new ambitions, not because of who you are, but because Christ is all. But Christ is in all. There's no distinction based upon where you grew up, your educational achievements, your gender, your ethnicity. If you are a slave or if you are free, Christ is in all and Christ is all. Change is inevitable for those who are in Christ. Which leads to the command concerning our ambitions. Just as the command in verse 5 was rather blunt, So the command in verse 8, to put them all away. Having put off the old self, we put away all the sinful ambitions that defined us. Like what, Paul? How about just, let's start with these. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Those are the old rags that we must strip off and lay them aside. Those are not the sort of garments that you wake up in the morning and begin to thumb through in your closet and decide, I think this one looks nice. I will put this on and I will step out in this. 
He's saying, no, put that away. Growing up, one of our summer traditions was going to cut firewood. Uh, Because our home was heated primarily through a wood stove in the winter, that meant several Saturdays throughout the summer, our family adventures would be devoted to going to Grandpa's 40 acres and cutting and splitting and hauling enough wood to heat our home in the winter. It was very hard, hot work, but I grew to love it. But there's one thing that I remember anytime we did that, because these 40 acres were covered in poison oak, It was expected that as soon as you came home and, of course, unloaded the firewood and stacked it, that you, upon entering the laundry room, stripped down and put those clothes immediately in the washer. There is no way that you came in and plopped down on mom's couch and put your feet up. There is no way that you came into the house, got comfortable, and just carried on with your evening. Put those things away. The inconsistency of what that is and where you are does not fit. That's the tenor of what Paul is saying. It does not fit. It's absolutely incongruent to think that a Christian who is hidden with Christ and God, who is put on the new self, would put back on the old self. Christian, is there any violation of God's law listed here that you are guilty of excusing or justifying? Are you justifying your anger towards others because of what they did or said? Are you thinking little of slandering another in a passing conversation because I just got to vent for a minute? Are you considering your freedom in Christ is a passport to traffic in obscene talk at work? How about the frequency in which you embellish or stretch or expand the details of various conversations, which is, as you know, lying? Christian, you must put these away. These are the old garments. You are clothed in Christ. One of the primary ways that we put these sort of things away is to repent of them. Let's not think of it just as mystical kind of ideas like, I'm putting that away. The way the Bible teaches us to do that is we actually do something called confession and repentance. Repentance is so much more than just feeling sorry for the pain you've caused or the inconvenience you've brought upon yourself because of your sin. Repentance, well, it begins with using the language that Scripture uses. We don't say, I made a mistake. We say we sinned. And then we use the language that God gives to that sin. That was malice. Forgive me. I need to confess, I absolutely slandered your name. At lunchtime today, we were with a bunch of the guys, and it just devolved into obscene talk. And I participated. That's the sort of language where they're using. Repentance also involves turning from that sin and turning towards Christ. We're not mere moralists. We're not merely trying to reshape our behavior. 
we recall that we're a new creation in Christ. And for everyone who's united in Christ, we have new desires and new abilities to turn from that sin and to trust in the provision that Christ has made. That's a part of being a new creation. You have new desires and new abilities. And ultimately, repentance, it's going to involve and be seen in gospel change. Why do I say gospel change? Because it's right here that we can take an off-ramp and begin to think that we're following through on biblical change when it might just be moralism. Gospel change. We're not merely ceasing to slander. You don't get a ribbon for that. We're now speaking well of others. We're encouraging them in the truth. We're not merely suppressing sinful anger. We're choosing to serve and put others above self. Do you want a little more definition on what this looks like? Then make note of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Notice what Paul does. You're close enough if you want to turn over a chapter or two. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Put away falsehood and speak the truth. But it gets even more explicit. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. He doesn't stop there. But... Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. He doesn't stop there. So that he may have something to share with someone in need. Gospel change is not just stopping stealing. It's not even just starting to work so that you can provide for yourself. Gospel change is generosity rather than thievery. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Instead of love of self, we love others. Instead of honoring selfish ambitions, I am driven by new ambitions to prefer you before myself. A Christian has new ambitions. Now, to say that we are a Christian, and to remain unchanged, it's unthinkable. But the good news of Scripture is to be united to Christ means that our transformation is inevitable. It's a done deal. The sort of change that comes through genuine Christianity, friend, it's unlike any other version of change you will hear about, read about, or subscribe to in this world. The greatest motivation for change within the Christian life, it's not moralism that gives you a set of obligations. It's not even stoicism that tells you to just be the better version of yourself. But that is wildly popular right now for interesting reasons. But it's not even that. It's not guilt or shame that seeks to manipulate you into change. How could you do that? Jesus, in all of his goodness. That's not gospel change. The gospel 
gives you new ambitions and new affections. Christianity says you must change because you're changed. Christianity says become who you are. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The sort of salvation that came by grace through faith. The sort of salvation that was all of Christ. Willed by the Father. Accomplished by the Son. Sealed by the Spirit. Now walk in that because that's who you are. That's the sort of change that motivates us and marks us out as God's people. You died with Christ. So put to death the remaining corruption of sin. You rose with Christ. So walk according to that newness of life that is yours because you're hidden in Him. And because you're hidden in Him, Christian, you are going to appear with Him in glory. Sin will be defeated. Death is forever transformed for you. And in that glorious reality of that day, let that shape today and how you live your life. To remain unchanged and call myself a Christian is unthinkable. But to be united to Christ means that my change is indisputable. May God continue to grow us in his understanding of this wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. And may he continue to cause the good fruit that he promises will come as we seek to trust in him. Father, we do pray that you would cause your good fruit to be born among us. Lord, we pray that you would sober us and awaken us to the reality of not only what you've saved us from, but what you've saved us to. Father, we pray that you would give us great clarity on who Christ is and who we are in being united to him. And that through that clarity, Lord, you would bring about radical change in our lives that testifies of your goodness and grace, we pray. Amen.